0: <laughs> it's a lot of pressure. <laughs> Good, morning. Good morning. My name is Alex, and I'm a grateful member of Al-Anon. Yes. And um, let me see. I think we might be one of the some of the only brown people. So that is my mom. And <laughs> so all of you now know a lot more about me than I know about you. But one of the interesting things that I found from this uh, family disease of alcoholism is that although we have the same experience, we don't have the same experience. Um, there are a lot of differences in the perspective that we had of how the family disease of alcoholism affects us. We actually were just laughing last night about um, we recalled an event completely differently, and uh, and there was she was like, "Well, I didn't. That how could I possibly have said that?" And I was like, "Well, unfortunately, here we are." <laughs> um, and I'm really grateful that we get to talk about the way that things were, um, and it's not painful. And we get to share honestly and openly about the way that things were, and it not it's not pointing fingers, it's not blaming, it's just, hmm, isn't that funny? I'm very grateful to be with, be with you today. Uh, I do have a home group. My home group is the One Purpose Al-Anon family group. It's in Charlotte. Um, like my mom mentioned earlier, it's on Thursday nights, 8 p.m. Eastern, and it is hybrid, so we'd be happy to have you any time. We don't have, uh, at least I don't have, like an Al-Anon sobriety date because I do think that would be this morning when I woke up to a knock on my door 30 minutes after I intended to be awake. And I was not feeling spiritual at that moment. <laughs> <laughs> I got started in my recovery in the program of Alateen and transitioned to the program of Alanon when I was about 17. And, and I always want to impress the importance that Alateen had on my recovery and hope that if there's anybody here tonight who has uh, a child that they know who's been affected by the disease of alcoholism, that they're able to consider the program of Alateen. We're here for our recovery, and kids see everything. Kids see everything, even if we don't think that they do. Uh, There's no way that I could have been brought up in the disease of alcoholism and it not have affected me the way that it did. And so I'm internally grateful for having been able to start an Alateen. It taught me how to be the person that I get to be today. So this program of recovery has taught me a lot of things. It taught me how to, it did teach me how to be a kid. Um, it actually really taught me how to be a kid after I became an adult. Uh, my sponsor tells me it's never too late to have a happy childhood. <laughs> and I've really uh, enjoyed being able to participate in that. So this program taught me how to, be, how to be a kid. This program taught me how to be an adult. This program taught me how to be a person. This program taught me a lot of things. And uh, so today I am going to share a little bit of how things were um, what happened, but mostly I'm going to share about what things are like now. I'm very privileged that I have now been in the program for longer than I've been than I was in active alcoholism, and uh, that number is only getting higher. I guess that's how it works. And now, uh, you know, I I just I just moved to Portland, Oregon, um, which is a whole thing. Moving across the country is a lot, uh, and I, I was flying over to to be here, and I was telling some folks, yeah, I'm going to be out of town this weekend, and they're like, oh, where are you going, and I couldn't get away with this with my best friend and, like, like my partner, but uh, with folks that I was just getting to know, I was like, oh, well, I'm going to go visit family. <laughs> and I really do consider that true. I'm not nervous about being here in front of you um, because I know that we're all here because we share a lot of fundamentally same experiences. I feel really safe in this room, and I hope that, you know, many, I hope that many of you do too. So the way that things were, um, just a couple facts to get started. Um... I, my parents did not follow the track of, you know, two people meet and they fall in love and they get married and then they love each other very much and then magically as a result they have a kid and, you know, that, you know, the two and a half kids white picket fence, that was not my experience. Um, I was absolutely, uh, I happened (laughs) uh, when nobody expected me to and my parents were not married at the time and they were not necessarily intending to stay together. Um, for the like foreseeable future, and so I knew this at a very young age. I was told this at a very young age that I was not planned for. I was not um, that I was essentially kind of an accident, and I internalized this very, very early on. Um, particularly because when I saw my my parents' relationship, my parents' marriage being unhappy, when it seemed like they did not enjoy being with one another, uh, did not enjoy being in this family, I considered that my fault. Because I showed up. My existence was the reason that we were unhappy, that they were unhappy. And so I carried around this guilt for a very long time that my existence was the reason that we had problems in our family. Because I didn't know exactly what was going on, but I knew that something was wrong. Um, I didn't know what it was. I didn't know that it was the alcoholism. I didn't know that it was the effects of alcoholism in the generations of my family. But I knew that something was wrong. I felt crazy. I, I felt like there was something that was happening in our house that was not supposed to be. And I didn't know what it was, but um, I just felt in danger all the time. That's really what it was. I walked around feeling scared. I walked around feeling like the world was always in chaos, and I didn't know what was going on. Uh, more facts. I am an only child, Um, My parents are both only children, so I don't have uh, uncles, aunts, cousins. I don't have uh, siblings. I was homeschooled for the majority of my elementary school years, which I'm learning. Apparently, kids learn things in elementary school about, like, interacting with other people. I didn't learn any of those things. Um, And so if you try to have a conversation with me and I just sort of, like, look at you, that's why. I I didn't learn how to meet people. And um, but that also meant that I was pretty isolated when I when I was a, a young kid during some of the most active parts of the alco- alcoholism in my home. Um, I was very isolated. We didn't really have a lot of family friends, and so I didn't have anything outside of my home to compare my experience to. To go, that's normal. This isn't. All I knew was what was in our our you know the four walls of our house. I let me see. Are there any, are there other facts? You heard a lot of them in my mom's share. Um, but both of my parents came from alcoholism. We come by this very, very naturally. Uh, there's alcoholism in pretty much every generation of my family on both sides and uh, there that means that there's also adult children uh, kind of like everywhere and they go out and they seek out other alcoholics and then you know that cycle keeps going and so the the ways that I experience life experience, family experience, relationships experience, the world, that is entirely through the lens of alcoholism and the lens of alcoholism that has been passed down from generation to generation. And I am am so grateful to not have to continue that. I'm so grateful that I don't have to uh, stay on this roller coaster ride so that you know my kids and their kids and their kids are, are continuing with the effects of this disease to the extent that it was, it was present in my home and my parents' home and my grandparents' home. Both of my parents had first marriages uh, that they came from, and so my view of marriage was pretty jaded um, pretty early on, especially because I was like a year and a half old when my parents got married, and all of this fit into, I didn't know what was normal, and I walked out into the world, and I took all of the experiences that I have of, that I had of my family and my house, and I was like, this is what everybody experiences, and that was not the case. I found out very shortly that that was not the case, and so I also learned to keep everything inside, that whatever was going on in our house, I wasn't supposed to go. Tell other people because they were going to look at me funny at best, and at worst they were going to uh, criticize my family. They were going to um, tell somebody. They were going to tell my mom that I said something, and uh, I just didn't know what was going to happen if my mom found out that I made that I made us look bad, and so I just kind of kept everything inside. I didn't. I didn't know uh, if there was anybody who would relate to the feelings that I was having, uh, if anybody would relate to the experiences, and it also meant that I. I thought that it was my fault that I was experiencing any of this. I thought that if I was better, if I was a better kid, if I was a better person, um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be feeling the way that I was feeling and that it was not anybody else's problem that I, that I was feeling like that. So I, isolation was something that characterized a lot of my childhood. I Let me see. All right. So each of my parents. So I knew that my dad drank. I knew that there was alcoholism. Alcohol was not a secret in our home. I uh, knew a lot about wine. Uh, I knew a lot about wine. By the time I was three, four, five, I was uh, trying to take care of my parents when they were drinking and um, because uh, I, I didn't understand the difference between my dad drinking alcoholically and my mom drinking in a normal way, apparently, because I didn't know what normal was. Uh, I knew that my father was an alcoholic, but again, I had heard that he had gone to AA, and then he had left AA, and he could drink again, and he was fixed. And I was like, sounds all right to me. This is my first time learning anything, so that sounds all right. I say that alcoholism was another member of our family. Uh, Alcohol was everywhere. We had alcohol decor. We had, like, wine decor. There was, like, back when wallpaper was still, like, the hot thing, we had, like, wine wallpaper. Um... And we would go on wine tastings. We would go to vineyards. I mean, obviously, I wasn't in tasting, but, you know, we would go to vineyards. I, I didn't consider this a problem. I knew that when my dad drank that he seemed to be nicer. He seemed to like me more. When my father wasn't drinking, he was emotionally distant, uh, emotionally and physically distant. He was the parent who stayed, stayed home with me, so I was around him the majority of the time, and I didn't feel like it. Um, I was around him the majority of the time but i didn 't feel like I had any access to him as a person. Uh, he would He would take me places if he needed to if he was asked to. Uh, there were times that he would ask me to do things, but as far as having a, a relationship between the two of us, there really wasn 't much to speak of except when he was drinking. Uh, he seemed to want to be involved with me. He seemed to want to have had a kid. That was also something I carried around. In his first marriage, he he had already had uh, some kids, and he didn't really want any more. And so I carried around, okay, so my parents are upset with each other, and that's my fault for having happened. And then my father didn't want any kids, and I happened, and so he doesn't want me. And he is only here because he wants to be with my mom. There was a whole lot wrapped up in that, but a lot of it was that I'm not wanted. I am, my existence causes problems, and that wrapped itself into this this ball of anxiety. I, I just lived a lot of my life in this state of anxiety and feeling like I wasn't supposed to be where I was. My mom was everything to me. Uh, my mom was my sun and moon and stars. My mom, the sun ro- rose and set on her and she taught me everything about what love was. I felt all of the connectedness that I felt like I was missing with my father. I had, like, double with my mom. And we. I didn't know where I stopped and she started or vice versa. And what that also meant was that when she did fly into these blind rages, I had no protection. I had no barrier. I, had, I took everything that she said as fact and truth. And so when she said... Um, you know, cruel things to me, I took that as fact and truth. And that was my entire sense of reality is what love is, is feeling that kind of connectedness, that kind of there is no space between the two of us, and that is that is what love is. And at the same time, with love always comes fear. With love always comes guilt. With love always comes I feel bad, I feel wrong, I feel like I'm, you know, causing a just misfortune in the other person's life. Um, that you know, people would be better off if I either was better at being a person or I wasn't around at all. It was, that was just sort of the vibe that I got growing up. But I didn't think that there was anything about me that needed changing. I just figured that, like, they needed to fix themselves and, like, I would be fine. You know, I knew that there was something wrong in our house. I did not think it was my, my father's drinking. I did think that it was my ma- mom being crazy. I did think that that was the problem and that she just kind of needed to work on that and then, like, we would be good. Um, and so when I, when I got to about um, eight and nine and my father's drinking had reached a peak and I also want I also want to say that I, as I've gotten older, I have come to understand the ways that alcoholism affected my parents' relationship that I didn't understand as a child. And so my perception of what was happening in our home as a result of alcoholism was only through the lens of being a child, and I didn't know the ways that my father's drinking. Um, embarrassed my mom uh, in public when they went places I didn't know how his drinking affected the ways that he interacted with other adults all I knew was that when my father drank he liked me more he joked he played with me and that when and then when, when my mom said no Gary you should stop drinking I was like well why are you wanting him to stop doing the one thing that makes him care about me that was how I interpreted that because i didn 't know any better and and now I have the capacity to understand how alcoholism affected all the members of my family, but at the time, I had the feelings I had the feelings of being that kid and not knowing and not knowing why that was happening and just feeling like, oh you know that this 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 person who's supposed to love me, who wants to care about me, um, this one state of being where they get to care about me that 's not important that 's not important it 's not allowed that That was the feeling that I carried around so I've had to come to peace with that, with that, that the ways that I've been able to heal the relationships with my parents has come from the experience that they had and the experience that I had were different. And we've been, we've both been affected by the disease of alcoholism and we can acknowledge what the facts were and acknowledge what the feelings were at the time without holding that still. I don't still need to be behaving from the perspective of that child. I have, I have other options now. I have other choices now as a gift of this program. So I, again, I didn't think that anything was, was up with me. I thought that it was all my mom. She needed to fix her anger issues. Everything was going to be great. My dad did not need to stop drinking. And instead, it was that my dad was supposed to stop drinking and nothing happened with my mom, really. And I was like, no, 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 hold on. I, you should have asked me first because I would have told you the order of priorities that we needed to work on. I was overly responsible very early, very early on, Um, I can remember at about five or six feeling this conscious thought of, I need to be the emotional and mental support for my mother that my father is not able to provide for her. And I, I was, I was five or six. I, I didn't know that that wasn't appropriate for a child to feel for their parent, to feel like they needed to be that kind of a support. And I was simply overly responsible. I was, and and it was a way to soothe my anxiety. I had control issues so early on. I had control issues before I could control anything. I had control issues before I could read. Like there, I just knew that when there were things going on around me, there was chaos going around me. I was like, what can I do? What can I do? I could fix this. I could fix this. I'm very smart. I could fix this. If anybody would just listen to me, I would be able to do this. And so I would tiptoe around people. I would do things um, behind their back to try to like quiet things over, take like you know smooth things over. I would try to be the comic relief in the room. Uh, I tried to be... I, I wouldn't be sad. I mean, I, I, I learned that if I got sad, that the anger got worse. So I, I kind of learned to keep the sadness in. But if I tried to be funny, if I tried to make people happy, uh, everything got better a lot faster. And so I, I learned to be very performative about the ways that I responded to conflict, especially other people being in conflict. There wasn't really a separation between... Well, my parents are, are um, fighting about something or my mom is yelling at my dad about something versus you know, this is a danger to me. There was, no, there was no distinction there. I saw my mom's angry, uh, angry behavior, and I, I wasn't able to d- distinguish it being against someone else or something else versus being me. You know, If she hit the dog, I didn't see any difference between you know, beating the dog and beating me. So while there wasn't really violence in my home, uh, there was always the fear of it. And so I walked through the world with this idea of I don't know why there's a differentiation between someone hurting someone else and someone hurting me. I was, I was uh, always afraid. I've walked around very afraid for my whole life. And uh, that that has come in layers. Unfolding that has come in layers. Even this summer, I'm finding I still walk around afraid a lot of times. And I'll be sitting in meetings, and I'll have to, like, force myself to relax my body. And I'm like, it's been so long. I thought I'd be done with this. <laughs> And apparently, building up alcoholism over, takes, over time means that it takes time to unbuild alcoholism from the ways that I operate in the world. Especially because it happened so early on. So when I was um, when I was when I was six six or seven, my grandmother did come over from India to come stay with us, and that was the first time that there was a safe adult in the house. Before that, everything was always chaos. I, did, I didn't have a safe place to go. Um, And then when my grandma moved in, she was, well, she was absolutely affected by the disease of alcoholism, just completely riddled um, with being an adult child. She was never unkind to me. Um, She was never aggressive. She was never angry. She never uh, did anything to hurt me. And that was a gift. That was a gift. I I don't know how I really would have made it through the last few years of kind of the escalation of alcoholism in our home without my grandmother being there. And I was able to um, feel like I I could give back to her, to be of service to her again towards the end of her life. And and I'll I'll mention that later. But that was something that I, I will always be grateful for, that there was a safe adult around. So when I was eight eight and nine, my my father's drinking got to kind of a peak. And uh, yeah, we had, you know, a whole little situation. My mom asked my dad not to drink. He didn't like that very much. And then we went to the ABC store. He told me to lie. And that was kind of an odd thing. I was, I, I did learn to lie very early on. My parents didn't know this until somewhat recently. I learned to lie very early on. I just learned to lie well. And so that nobody knew that I was lying. Because, I mean, I needed to be able to cover things up so that, you know, I wasn't, I didn't risk being in, in danger for things, and so I learned to cover things up. But I was not used to one of my parents asking me to lie to the other one. That was not really something that happened, and so I did, I did tell my grandmother about that because there was something in me that felt like this is kind of a big thing. This is kind of a this is something bigger than what we, than the the rat race that we're usually used to, um, and I, I think this is a problem. And. I did not realize that as a result, uh, my father was not going to be able to drink anymore and that he was going to go back to not only being detached, but being really angry about it. Not detached with love, like detached like, and without love um, and really angry about it. And, and I was like, this is not what I intended. And then my mom started going to Al-Anon and I went, oh, great. Oh, great. Okay. Now, the priorities are now in order. All right. She is going to fix herself. He is going to do something and everything is going to be happy. And that didn't exactly work. Um Things got a little better sometimes, but what I found is that, regardless of what my parents did to their behavior, the ways that they changed their behavior, I was still acting the same way. I was still reacting every time, even if what they said was not not cruel, not unkind. I was still reacting as if it would be as if it, as if that was always a possibility I was always uh, I, w- I was jumpy, I was always you know peering around every corner, you know being Concerned about whether or not I was going to be safe. I didn't know how to connect any of this with my experiences in alcoholism. But my mom told me to get in the car one day so we could go to Alatine and I did what mom said, so I got in the car. And we went to Alatine and I did not like that idea. I didn't relate to other kids my age, I found. Most of the time when I interacted with other kids my age, they had priorities that I didn't understand um, because they were talking about, you know, playing outside and, you know, who they were going to be able to go have a sleepover with. And I was, you know, my parents were passing out in my bedroom and I was putting a pillow under their head so that I, so that they would be able to sleep through the night on my floor. And I really was not able to align with what other kids' values were. And so I didn't like the idea of going and sitting in a room with other people my age and being like, oh, this is going to be torture. And I, sure enough, I went. I turned my ears off. I sat in the corner. I did not say anything. I did not listen because it was a, it was a, it was a way of protecting myself. I didn't want to believe that this was going to be something that helped me uh, because that opened me up to the disappointment of it not. And so I did go back week after week. Um, I have ADHD. It got really boring not doing anything for an hour and not listening. So I started to kind of listen a little bit. And what filtered through were, were people talking – about the feelings that I had inside that I had no language for. I had no way of articulating that I was feeling angry, that I was feeling sad, that I was feeling hurt, that I was feeling guilty. I didn't know those words. I knew those words in relation to other people, but I didn't know it in relation to my own feelings. I had people describing what uh, wh- when I felt that like constriction in my chest when I heard my mom drive in the driveway and I was trying to figure out what mood that she was in to see if I should be around or not and I was and I was gripped with this feeling of like do I need to run away do I not you know people were able to give me words for that um, for fear and say you know just because we're afraid of something doesn't mean that. We have to behave, that we have to react as a result of that. Just because we're afraid doesn't always mean there's something to be afraid of. Sometimes we're just afraid of things, and that's okay. And all of this was really foreign to me. I didn't I didn't understand. One of the other really important things that was that I picked up on Al- in Alatine really early on was more safe adults. Um, I will always 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 be grateful for Alatine sponsors and people who are you know Alanon members involved in Alatine service. It's, it's absolutely priceless because I was able to walk into a room twice a week every week where there were adults who were not unkind to me, who were there to make sure that I was okay, who were not talking over me, who were not telling me what my experience was or wasn't, who were only there to support and love me unconditionally, who did not expect me to be anything other than what I was. And that was one of the first times that I'd ever experienced that. You know, my grandmother was a safe person, but she was also really, really, really affected by the disease of alcoholism and without um, any kind of recovery. And so to have these adults who had a balanced perspective of me and a balanced behavior towards me was absolutely priceless and that was one of the things that that got me to keep coming back I I opened up to these adults and then I opened up to the kids around me because I I saw that they were not judging me they were not judging one another they were able to share things that I hadn't ever found somebody else who understood and I was like you know what if I go somewhere twice a week every week where I just feel understood sure yeah yeah Keep keep it coming. Um, I'm okay with that. And so I I, I got more involved in Alatine. I got involved in Alatine service. I got involved in service pretty early on uh, because because why? I think my mom did. I think that's why. Uh, my mom did, and I did everything that she did. So I decided to go also. And uh, also because I was a little overachiever very early on, and we needed a gr. And I was like a position. I can take a position. I love a position. Uh, so I. <laughs> I learned that it was not actually about ego, which I was like, oh, you could have told me that beforehand. But I was a GR and I started going to assemblies and uh, going to district meetings and going to assemblies. And that was really, really great for a lot of reasons. One, in service I found uh, uh, I was soothed, that part of me that felt like I needed to prove something in order to prove. uh, I needed to do enough to prove that I was valuable, that that I could be in the room. Service soothed that because I wasn't expected to do anything other than just be there. You know, I, I, was, I was only there to represent my group. I wasn't there to necessarily make decisions on the behalf of the group. I was there to collect information, and I would then bring it back to the group. And, and people were just grateful that I was there, that I was doing service. Uh, the other reason that I really loved service is because being a 10-year-old in a room full of, like, 55-year-old Al-Anons is like being a celebrity. <laughs> It was great. And I had so many, so many safe adults who were just, like, loving on me and who were just so glad that I was there. Um, I had people, you know, between district meeting to assembly who were just like, oh, you're back. And it's like, yes, yes, be excited. (laughs) So while I didn't need to hang on to that ego boost about, about service, at the very beginning it was just that feeling of being valued exactly for who I was and being there. Uh, that was really, really important to me. It was also important that people valued me for being young. In my house, I felt I did not feel valued for being young. I felt like I was I needed to be an adult as soon as possible. And so, for people to value me having having being a child uh, was was something I hadn't encountered before. And it was really it was quite healing. I got into my steps, and. Um, I did my steps, uh, one, my step one, I, 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 my sponsor drove me nuts with my step one because I was like, okay, how do I do step one? And she said, um, okay, well, you write me a list of everything that you're afraid of. And it was in an email and I was typing this email and I've been sitting there for about 20 minutes typing. And then I was like, I need to be honest. I'm never going to finish this email because I'm afraid of everything. I'm afraid of everything. And I really was, I was afraid of everything. And, um, she went, okay. Uh, so All those things that you're afraid of, you're powerless over them. You can't do anything about them. And I was like, that does not make me feel better. I don't know if you thought that that was a good thing to say, but it was not. (laughs) And step one was very uncomfortable for me, and I need step one to be uncomfortable every time that I take it because um, if I'm, like, doing well, I'm not feeling like I'm powerless over things generally. Um, My step one is something that I take on my knees, and I need my step one to also kind of feel a little bad because otherwise I don't have a reason for step two. My step two comes because I'm like, yeah, that sucks. I need something better, and that is where God comes in. That's where God comes in is because all the things that suck that I don't have any control over, that I'm afraid of, that I walk around worrying about, um, those are things that my higher power gets to take. So my steps two and three, I I did those to the best of my ability at the time. I was 10. I didn't know a whole lot. I was still seeing things for the first time. And so I, I did my steps two and three to the best of my ability. Um, but my understanding of a higher power was not super, it was not super rock solid. And so I, um, I, I did my step forward, did my step forward to the best of my ability. Again, I was 10. I hadn't met a lot of people, so I didn't have a lot of people that I'd harmed. And so my list was fairly short and I didn't know how to be honest with myself. That was the main thing. I didn't know how to be honest with myself. I, I was as honest as honest as I could be, but, uh, there was still, there was still a lot left in here that I, I didn't know how to have access to. In step six is when I hit a wall. I hit a wall with step six because my relationship with my higher power was, my understanding of my higher power was not yet one where I believed that my higher power could take these character defects from me. Um, I didn't believe that there was anything that was going to be left of me after my character defects were taken. That was all. That was the only way that I defined myself. And so I decided to take a hiatus from the steps I, um, until I, until I figured it out until I was able to sit on it for long enough that I was like, okay, I finally got past step six. I, that hiatus ended up being seven years. And so whenever there's someone who comes to me and they're like, hi, oh, you know, I've been on my steps for two years. You know, I, I feel like I'm so far behind. I'm like, listen, listen, you're doing well. <laughs> I sat on one step for seven years, all right? Um, but in that time, I had to I had to do some more living. I had to do some more um, acting out of my character defects. So I took this hiatus and um, I just kind of stayed involved in service. I, I stayed... Coming to meetings, I never stopped going to meetings. I was very grateful for that. I never stopped going to meetings. Even during times when I felt like I drifted a little bit farther from the program, I always felt anchored by knowing there was a place for me to be, a place for me to go, a place for me to be understood. So I entered teenage, and I don't know how many of you remember being a teenager, but it kind of sucks. And I did think that I was the only person who had ever experienced the feelings that I was experiencing. And as a result, I did drift a little farther from the program because I was like, even though this program is called Alatine, there's no way that these people could, re- could relate to the things that I'm experiencing right now. Okay, this is the only I, – I am the only one. And I, I did go out and I found – Ways to practice the patterns of alcoholism that have, had affected me growing up. Around this time, I went into public school, and so I was basically interacting with other people for the first time, and I found that I could make, um, I, I could have friends and relationships that reminded me of my parents, and it's not that, th- that I wanted that necessarily, but it was all I knew. I didn't know anything other than the, way that my pa- the ways that my parents had behaved when I was a kid. That was all I knew about love. That was all I knew about connection. Um, and I also have I – have, I have a great picker when it comes to finding people who are kind of nuts, um, who have been affected by alcoholism. I've heard people say their picker is broken. Mine is not broken. It's just tuned to the wrong frequency. <laughs> and so I was able to find people who did, in fact, remind me. And um, so, so long story short, you know, I, I fell into these relationship patterns of – The 4Ms, martyrdom, mothering, manipulation, and managing, not in that order necessarily. I loved all of those. I participated fully and completely in my character defects. Um, I needed to see what they looked like. I hadn't been able to practice them. And I walked around with that feeling of guilt and shame, and that drove my actions without me realizing it. I would behave in ways in relationships that um, did not make sense that were not healthy, and it was because I always felt like I wasn't doing enough. I wasn't enough for the other person, and so I would lie to cover up things that I felt like that was going to prove that I was not enough to them. I would, um, I would, I would behave erratically. I would, I would convince them of things that they that w- were not actually the case because I was terrified that they were going to find out that I was not actually good enough. Um, I would manipulate situations so that I felt like I could have a little bit of control over what their actions. Were and um, because when people had erratic, chaotic actions, it it terrified me because I was like, oh, well, now I'm in danger. So the fact that I sought out erratic and chaotic people was a little bit of a trap there. And um, I I spent about uh, five years doing that. I I was in like relationship after relationship, and uh, I was a teenager, and so there's a degree to which it's like, all right, you're a teenager, how much does dating really mean? But I behaved like an adult very early on. So I was acting out the adult relationship that I had observed in my parents. So the effects that it had on me were still pretty significant because it was reinforcing the patterns of alcoholism that I saw in adults, and it affected my adult life. So I did this for about five years, and then when I was 17, I hit a rock bottom. And I had not hit a rock bottom thus far. My parents had hit a rock bottom, which was why our family um, went into recovery, but I had not hit a rock bottom. And I got to a point where I felt like everybody in my life hated me. Um, I did not know where to go or what to do. I didn't know how I ended up there, and I did not know how to get. I didn't know how to get up. I didn't have anything left. I, my my uh, meter was completely empty, and I started finding myself at the top of parking garages and um, driving home and being like, "Hmm, you know, we have a windy road on the way home." Suicidal ideation is a part of my story. Um, it's a part of my story because I, I, I learned from so early on that I was not supposed to be here, that I was a mistake. And I internalized the idea that, that God made a mistake in me coming here. And, and I didn't have any sense of, of self-worth or, or me, me needing to be here. And I share that because the program Valanon is a miracle that has kept me here. That's the, the program of al is the only reason that I am standing here today. Otherwise, you would have a different speaker, you know, if things had continued the way that they were. And, and I, never into, I never expected to be here. As long as I can remember, I was like, I'm not going to live past um, 18. Certainly not past 21. But I'm, I, for whatever reason, don't know why it's going to be. I'm not going to live past 18. So I'm turning 24 in a couple months. And it's a very weird feeling because I feel like I'm showing up for a test that I didn't think I was going to have to study for. <laughs> about being an adult. I I didn't think that was, I was making decisions that I was like, I did not think I was going to have to deal with this. Now I have to have like, what, like a retirement account and uh, I do to understand taxes. Like I I did not think that this was going to be my problem, but I get to, I get to have joy in my life now. And I'm like, crap, I have to actually do the rest of this because I like it now. I like having these moments of joy. And that's just a gift from the program. So I hit this rock bottom, and uh, I now had gotten to a point where my step seven was uh, relevant. I was entirely ready for my higher power to remove these defects of character. I'd gotten to a point where I was like, anything is better than this. I don't care if it leaves me with like, very little left, if I'm full of holes. you know. There's a Courage to Change reading that talks about feeling like Swiss cheese, or the concern about feeling like Swiss cheese with holes left from these character defects. I thought I don't care. I, anything is better than this. And the wonderful thing is that when my higher power uh, removes character defects from me, I'm never left with just giant holes as a result. Um, in fact, I'm left with something that's far better than what I had before. Um, I'm left. My my world expands when my higher power removes defects of character. I thought they were parts of me that were going to get taken out, and I realized that instead they were walls that were keeping me from the life that I could have could have been living, and that I get to live now. So when my higher power removes them. My view opens up. And so um, that was my step seven. And uh, then came back with a doozy after seven years, step eight, step eight and nine. But I had some amends to make now. And so it was pretty relevant. And um, so I I got back with my sponsor. I've been meeting with my sponsor the whole time. But um, I got back with my sponsor about doing my step eight and nine. And I, I had that list of, like, okay, I'm comfortable making these amends, these amends are a maybe, and these are, like, a never, like, it'll be a cold day, you know, when when I make these amends. And, of course, it was the top of that list. That was the person that I made my first amends to. I, I finished going over my step eight list with my sponsor, drove home, and um, it was... Uh, an, an ex-partner that I had who I had brought into the program because I didn't know how to mind my business And I was like well you were affected by alcoholism. I can fix you And I brought them into the program It turns out they had just gotten done doing the eighth step with their sponsor and I was on the top of their It'll be a cold day list and they were at my house And so we sat down in my parents bedroom and did our amends and that was an excruciating process I did not want the, the earth to open up and swallow me whole But I lived. I survived. And I was like, hmm, hmm. Okay, well, the rest of them can't be that hard. And um, sure enough, there was this understanding of, you know, once I had the freedom of making amends, letting go of that guilt and shame, it was the first time in my life that I felt freedom from guilt and shame. It was the first time in my life that I was able to say, I am not a fundamentally bad and wrong person for having behaved in a way that caused harm to someone else. And I I can amend that behavior. I get to be a person that I didn't think I could be before. So I went through the rest of my amends. None of them were particularly eventful, I don't think. Um, the amends process just gave me a lot of freedom. Steps four and nine, while terrifying to me, are some of the most freeing steps to me. I learn about myself, and I learn about the choices that I have. Around this time, I, um, I moved to uh, I, moved, I moved south to Savannah, Georgia to go to school and it was my first time being in, um, having to find recovery that was not in Charlotte, where I was used to it. I'd been in recovery in Charlotte for uh, eight years at that point, and I had gotten really comfortable with recovery in Charlotte. The people there had seen me through a lot of things. Um, oh, I, I forgot to mention, in my rock bottom, one of the things that I really got there that was just transformative for me was a rock solid foundation of faith. Uh, it was this understanding that, you know, when I have nothing, there's a higher power taking care of me. I thought about the times when I was a child where there were no adults who were taking care of me. Um, you know, they were, they were doing uh, adults and alcoholism things. I don't know. Um, and I, there was nobody who was, who was around for me, and yet I survived. There were there were times something my mom and I were talking about last night. My my father would just kind of leave me places, and um, like he would either forget me at the grocery store or the bank. Um, but then sometimes he would just like set me down somewhere, like in a grocery store, and he'd be like, "All right, I will be back in two hours." And I was like, "Okay." I was like six, and um, I wasn't. I was never taken. You know, I never got snatched. Nothing ever happened to me, and. There is only there's only a higher power that could be thanked for that, Um, because when I look back now, I'm like, I was six and I was alone in public a lot. You know, there was something looking out for me and and I can build on that. I can build on the idea that there is just something out there that's that's looking out for me. That's basically what my higher power is. My understanding of my higher power shifts and changes and it has over the years and it probably will continue to. But it's it's based on there is something out there that's that's looking out for me and I can rely on that. So I um, I moved I moved to Savannah for school. I had to find program there. I, I thought maybe I could get by without it. Like I spent like the first three months like not going to meetings. And I was like, this is fine. Like I'm fixed now. Um, I dropped about 35 pounds in two months. Um, I was miserable. I was suicidal again. I um, did not know how to establish or maintain any kind of relationships of any kind with friends or anything. I was very isolated. And I was like, Maybe that's not working out so well. Maybe, maybe I should try going to meetings again. Maybe that'll help. And, and it did. Uh, and, and when I walked into my first meeting somewhere else, I walked in and it was a group of about 13 um, white ladies over the age of 70. No offense, I love y'all. Uh, <laughs> Um, but I walked in, you know, a 17-year-old brown kid with whatever color hair I had at the time, and I was like, oh, they're going to kick me out. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to be able to relate. But shortly I realized that an Al-Anon meeting is an Al-Anon meeting. And I will always find home when I go to an Al-Anon meeting because we are all here for the same reason. That ended up being my home group when I was in Savannah for a while. Um, I ended up loving those, you know, 75-year-old white ladies. <laughs> and I was sad when I had to leave. <laughs> Um around this time I had I had wrapped up my steps and so I asked my sponsor I was like so what's next you know what's 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 going on um and uh she said well well what do you want next and I was like well I don't know how to be in relationships I don't know how to be in relationships at all I don't have any tool book and so we started going into the traditions and um I didn't I didn't really register that the traditions could be applied to my personal life at all I just knew that they were a lot of words um but what I found is the traditions were the rule book that I had been looking for for my whole life. They were guidelines that kept our rooms safe. And so they were able to keep my relationships safe, to, safe as well. And um, I'm not going to share a whole lot on the traditions and concepts right now because you should come to our workshop. It's at 3.30. Uh, it's entirely about the traditions and concepts. But just some of the basic principles that applied to my relationships. The idea of autonomy taught me what boundaries were. I prided myself on not having any boundaries. I was like, I don't have boundaries. Instead, I love people. And that was not how it worked at all. (laughs) I just didn't have any boundaries. But autonomy taught me where do I stop and another person starts. And that gave me freedom. That gave me freedom from feeling like others' actions had to determine my feelings and emotions and my behavior. And it also gave me freedom to be able to take care of myself to make my own choices and not have to worry about, okay, are they going to feel this certain way if I do this? Or are they going to feel that certain way if I do that? Or if I don't take care of this thing that they're doing, is that going to be something that causes them harm in the future that I'm supposed to be taking care of? I didn't have to, I didn't have to worry about that. My autonomy was just what is what is in my hula hoop? Um, the traditions taught me the idea of mutual aid. Mutual aid was a really important concept for me to understand what is important in um, it, what what helps my relationships feel good. It's a, it's an it's become an excellent metric for me to be able to see. I feel kind of off, and and I don't know why I feel off. I feel kind of weird when I interact with this person. I feel I feel uncomfortable with the with the dynamics that we have, and there are a certain set of criteria that I get to run through and go. Are we hitting these marks that I get to hit when I'm in the rooms of Al-Anon? One of those is mutual aid. Are we are we is this a relationship of mutual aid? And uh, when I understand that, it gives me um, peace. It gives me peace to know that this is a, a principle that is not inherently wrong or bad, mutual aid. It's something that I, I want to strive for. And so if this relationship is not about mutual aid, it's not that I'm bad and wrong, and that's, a relation, that, that's why the relationship is bad and wrong. It's just that that's what it is. Um, and I get to operate from there. One of the other ones that has uh, made a big difference is Tradition 6. Uh, we should never... Uh, endorse, finance, or lend our name to any outside organization. I endorsed, financed, and lent my name to a lot of people. Um, a lot of people. I love to take care of people. I love to be their keeper. I love to pay for them with strings attached. It was a way of assuaging that feeling of guilt in me. I was like, well, if I feel guilty, I can spend money on people, and that solves it. And that was something I learned as a child. And uh, and so there were always strings attached. And so this gave me freedom from that, which was an uncomfortable process. But now I have the gift of being able to give freely to be in my relationships for fun and for free, uh, to be able to have that balanced affection for others. And then after I finished the traditions, I went, so what now? And my sponsor said, well, do you want to work the concepts? And I was like, I never thought about that. I, I, had, I had heard the concepts because I'd been in service. I'd, I'd heard the concepts. But again, lots of words, didn't think that they were going to apply to my life. The concepts broke the world wide open for me. It taught me how to be in the world. It taught me what it meant to be, meant to be a person. Um, The concepts taught me how to be an employee I didn't think that was going to happen I didn't think Al-Anon was going to be relevant to my work life But absolutely There's not a part of my life that Al-Anon hasn't touched Not a single part of my life that Al-Anon hasn't touched And uh, the concepts taught me a lot Again, come to our workshop later and you'll learn more about it (laughs) So what is life like for me now? Actually, let me mention a couple things about the concepts. So the concepts, um, they taught me what it meant to have ownership over myself. They taught me what it meant to have responsibility. They taught me what it meant to rely on other people. I learned not to rely on other people. I learned to be hyper-independent. I don't need anybody. I don't need to. I do for others. They don't do for me. That's what my role is here in life. And, And the concepts drilled into me over and over again. I was, re- I was reading in our workbook, Reaching for Personal Freedom, the green book that talks about our legacies. Um, I was reading through the concepts in that and every week when I went over it with my sponsor, the, the like, beginning paragraph essentially said things are better when we involve other people. And the first time I read it, I went, mm, I don't know why they're saying that. You know, it might be relevant for other people who are less capable, but I don't need that. You know, I things are not better when I involve other people, actually. And then the next week, it would be like things are better when we involve other people. And I'd be like, I don't know why they're saying it again. (laughs) Third week, things are better when we involve other people. I'd be like, Listen, I'm getting tired at this point. Fourth week, things are better when we involve other people. And I'd be like, Hmm, maybe they're starting to have a point. Fifth week, um, things are better when we involve other people, and it finally clicked a little bit that things are better when we involve other people. (laughs) Things are better when I involve other people. I might think that you know, I have it together the most when I don't involve other people, but my life is worse when I don't involve other people. Um, my life is pretty sad when I don't involve other people. Um, I'm finding that things being better doesn't have to mean that things are perfect. It doesn't have to mean that things are done exactly the way that I think that they should be done. It doesn't even really mean that things are done in the way that the expectations were set for them to be done. But things are better because life is better when I share my life with other people. Um, experiences are better when I get to share them with other people. That, that feeling of connectedness is something that I, I get to experience. I never got to experience that as a child. I get to experience that now. And that is absolutely priceless. So, yeah, things are better when I involve other people. Um, it taught me how to relax. The concepts taught me how to like take a break, take a breather and like calm down a little bit um, Because I still tended to be like very wrapped up in anxiety So again come to our concepts workshop later and and I'll talk more about it What is life like now? Um, My life is a miracle My life is a miracle now My life was a miracle in the beginning Again, I I happened against all odds uh, of being born and my mom was on birth control when I, when I was conceived and had, like, problems already before that. Like, I really fought my way to be here. And oh. and now, you know, with the help of this program, I've still, you know, I, I fought my way to be here. And, and it's weird sometimes. I look around, and um, the other morning I walked into my apartment, and um, I, I love my apartment. It has... It has like a full wall of windows and a skylight. And I opened all the blinds earlier and the sun was, was coming in directly through it. And I have a little decal that casts a little rainbow on the wall. And um, I had a candle going and it smelled really nice. And I walked in and I was like, I love it here. I walked in and I was like, I love that the sun is coming in through the windows. And I love that I get to be here and see this. And that feeling of joy, that feeling of like, I feel so right being here. I never thought that I was going to be able to experience that. and And that is... Entirely because I was able to come here and you guys taught me it's good to be a person. It's good to to have joy. It's good to experience the world. It's good to notice God and the things that we see every day. I learned to notice God and, and be grateful. Gratitude changed everything. Gratitude changed everything in my life because I started to see the ways that my higher power was doing for me what I could not do for myself. I started to see the ways in which my higher power was taking care of me, continuing to take care of me, had since I was a young child, and was continuing to. Um, I want to share, this is something I, I, it took a while for me to be able to share, but um, I was not born a boy, um, or I might have been inside, but I didn't really know what to do with that. Um, I was just really like, "Mm, I hope that resolves itself. And then I got to 14, and I was like, it did not resolve itself. And I, I went to my mom and, and I said, you know, I, I, this, this gender thing, I don't feel right in this body. And uh, I bring this up for a, a couple of reasons. I, I know that some consider it an outside issue. To me, it's not because it's my life, um, but also because Al-Anon has affected every single part of my life, and this is no different. Um, Al-Anon has helped my transition in kind of like three main ways. The first was that in the rooms, I changed my name and um, people just kind of went with it. I just started introducing myself as something different, and they were like, "All right," you know. Nobody came up to me, and they were like, "Well, what are you doing?" You know, nobody nobody said that. Um, nobody ever doubted me in the rooms, and they watched me grow from a child into you know an adult. And nobody ever made me feel bad for the decisions that I was making or feel other than that was a level of acceptance that I didn't find in any any other space, any other space at that time. Um, the, the second thing is that my mom and I had, had repaired our relationship. We'd done a lot of work on repairing our relationship. Sometimes I forget to include this part that my mom and my relationship got a lot better. It, it, it's amazing now. My mom is my best friend now. We did so much work. Could I tell you exactly what that work was? No, I don't necessarily remember a lot of it, but it was day by day. It was, it was learning how to live with one another. It was learning how to be kind, kind and loving with one another. And that meant that by the time I was, um, 15, 16, 17, and I had come out at school and I was going through, uh. Uh, legal and medical transition my mom was my rock my mom was there for me when no one else was um, I, I live in North Carolina North Carolina is not very nice to trans people and um, I was the first person to come out at my school and they were not very nice to me and my mom fought with me my mom was there for me when no one else was. My mom was there for me when my father didn't want to have anything to do with me. Um, my mom was there for me when I had, like, friends who turned their back on me. When, it, when I was fighting against the legal system, my mom was there for me every step of the way. And we never thought we were going to be able to be close. We never thought that we were going to be able to have any kind of relationship. So for me to be able to trust and rely on her is 100% because of this program of Al-Anon. Uh, there's, there's no way otherwise. And so I will always, always be grateful for that. A lot of people don't have that. A lot of trans kids don't have that. And I'm so grateful that I got to have, have that relationship with my parent. And the third reason is because um, I did start Hormones. This didn't just happen because I wished for it. Um, LAUGHTER I started hormones, and what I found is that um, I started being angry. I started being really angry and impulsive, and um, I, 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 did, I forgot how to be a good listener, and I didn't know how to control my emotions, and I just, I didn't know what was going on with me, and I went to my doctor and I said, this is, these are the things that are happening, you know? Like, I'm, like, I'm speeding. I, I don't really speed. Why am I speeding? You know?" And he was like, oh, well, that's just being a guy. And I was like, I don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> You know, like I stopped being willing to take directions from people, like I was like i don 't like any of this." <laughs> and so I went around I went around to the men that I encountered in my life, and I was like, "Will you tell me what masculinity means to you? Will you tell me what it means to you to be a man?" and i didn 't like the answers that I was getting. A lot of it was about um, not showing emotion, not not telling people that you feel bad. It was about um, always about being a provider. It was about um, not being seen as weak, not being seen as effeminate. it was about um, a lot of a lot of not being human, and I didn't like that very much. I, that was not the kind of person that I wanted to be. And then I turned and I, I saw the the um, men in Al-Anon that I saw, and I was like, "Well, well, they're vulnerable. They're willing to talk about their emotions. They're willing to um, be good listeners, kind and compassionate to others, respectful. Um, they have patience." And uh, I feel safer on the men in Al-Anon. And I was like, that is the kind of person that I want to be. And so I was able to find role models in Al-Anon. And I was able to practice the principles of this program, the traditions that had taught me how to have relationships, how to be a person in this world. They taught me how to be a man also. And they taught me how to be a kind of man that I was proud of, that I continue to be proud of. Uh, they taught me how to behave in, in ways that I get told a lot of times that I'm really respectful, and I really pride myself on that because there are a lot of people, I think, that I've come across who who struggle with with um, being respectful after... Anyway, with with masculinity comes a lot of things, and I'm just really grateful to have had role models in the program of Al-Anon of, of men who were willing to be fully themselves in an authentic way because it taught me how to be like that. Um, and now I get to be somebody that I'm proud of. Um... Relationships with my parents, Um, yeah, I am best friends with my mom now, best friends Uh, I, I, on the way from, I I just moved to Portland, when I was coming from Portland I, I had a layover in Dallas And my mom was in a conference in Dallas at the time. And uh, we were just going to come in on different flights, uh, fly in in yesterday, different, you know, staggered by an hour. She surprised me at my gate in Dallas so that we would be able to fly back on the same flight together. And um, I almost started crying in the airport. Um, I was so glad. I was so glad to see her. There was nothing but joy in my heart when I got to see her. And that feeling when we never thought we were going to be able to live together again, never thought we would be able to talk to each other again, only because of this program. My relationship with my father is um, a lot better than it used to be. It's kind of weird. I think he thinks I'm—he considers me his friend, um, which is odd to me because we like had like a big falling out. I I just never—I assumed we were never going to talk again. And now he like tells me things, just like for fun. Like like he just tells me things because he wants me to know them. And I'm like, why are you talking to me? Um, <laughs> but but I'm finding it's not hard to be kind to him. Um, I I get to. I get to be there for him in a way that I wish that he had been there for me when I was a kid. And that's a way of making amends to myself. It's a way of making amends to him. Um, and it's just really healing to be able to be that, to be, to be there for him in that way. And that's, again, only because of, of this program. My grandmother, um, at, at, um, at the beginning of the pandemic... I was in my senior year of college, and so um, I didn't I didn't have a graduation. I was that graduating class who didn't have a commencement or anything like that. Um, my grandmother had reached a stage in her cancer that she required um, full-time care, and my mom was not going to be able to handle it on her own. My mom had multiple jobs and was like, I can't do this on my own. Will you come home? And uh, so I did that summer after I graduated. I came home, and I helped take care of my grandmother for the um, uh, three months until she passed. And that period of time was really, really, really difficult. It was really, really difficult. She, she required a, a, lot, a lot of care in ways that I never would have wanted to see her in, in that, um, that state of being that didn't have a lot of dignity. Uh, but what it was is it was a way of me being of service to her Um, The way that she had been that safe space for me, been there for me and supported me when there was nobody else around who was able to take care of me. I was able to pay some of that back. Not that it was a debt, but I was able to respond in gratitude for that. I was able to be there for her in a time where she was, I saw her afraid. I saw her afraid in a way I had never seen her afraid before. And I was able to be there and just be kind and loving to her. Even at the end, she wasn't very kind and loving to me. She was, you know, it's hard, dying. It's hard seeing that. And, and she took out some of that on me, and I was able to just go, you know what? I understand, and I just needed to be kind and loving to her. And that was a gift, being able to do that. That was a gift um, that I don't think I would have known how to do if I hadn't found recovery. I, I moved about four months ago, I moved, this is, this is my last part, I'm wrapping up, um, I moved about four months ago across the country to Portland, Oregon, away from everything that I had ever known, and um, everybody that I loved was on the East Coast, and I, I knew nobody on the West Coast, and that was very difficult, and I felt like a newcomer. I started having to find meetings and, and show up, and they'd be like, have you been to meetings before? And I'd be like, yes, but act like I haven't. Because I was having a really hard time. I was isolating. I was depressed. I didn't know what to do. And what it really was is I had always had somebody to take care of. I had always had somebody to focus on. I'd always had somebody to kind of like pour myself into. And I didn't. I was all by myself. And I had to sit with myself. And I had to sit with the feelings that I hadn't dealt with. And I had to sit with what does it mean for me to be a person now? Again, you know, I feel like I'm taking a test I didn't know to study for. I didn't know I was going to have to be a person by myself. All I knew was in the context of other people. And that scared me. That scared me a lot. It continues to scare me. And learning how to... Learning how to be okay with that, to be able to participate in life and be joyful and, and and grateful. I found so much joy and gratitude this summer that I never thought I was going to be able to because I was able to go to meetings. I've been going to like six meetings a week, but I didn't even realize it. It wasn't like I was like, okay, I need to go to six meetings. It was just like, I need I need something. <laughs> I need something, and I know that the rooms are always there for me. I know that there is always a safe place for me to go, and so I did. And so I've been able to find that support, that serenity, know that there is, a, there is always a God that's looking out for me. Even when I forget, I have to get... My butt in the chair, and that will remind me. That will remind me there is always a place for me to go. And um, and today the program has taught me a lot. The program has taught me how to be a kid. Like I said, the program has taught me how to be an adult. The program has taught me how to be an employee, a supervisor. The, empl- the program has taught me how to be a man. The program has taught me how to be a person. The program has taught me how to be a partner. The program has taught me how to do everything in my life, and I will always, always be grateful, be so grateful for the ways that Al-Anon has saved my life. My life today is a miracle, and it's only because of this program. Thank you for letting me be here and share with you.